Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome to Relationship Truth Unfiltered, and I am so excited today to have as my guest, Darby Strickland. Darby is a counselor and faculty member for the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. She's the author of Is It Abuse? A Biblical Guide to Identifying Domestic Abuse and Helping Victims. She's also a contributor to the free web-based training curriculum, Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. Darby has a Master's of Divinity degree in counseling from Westminster Theological Seminary, where she also teaches a course on counseling people in abusive marriages. She and her husband, John, have taken great delight in homeschooling her three kids. And as I was talking with Darby earlier, I said to her, that must be the hardest job of all. I can't even imagine homeschooling three kids through their entire school career. So welcome, Darby. I'm so thankful that you're here and so grateful that you wrote this book. No, I'm delighted to be with you, Leslie. And your ministry just reaches so many. It's such an important one. Thank you. Tell me what got you interested in dealing with this whole topic of oppressive control in marriage. Did you start out after your degree thinking you wanted to be a specialist in marriage, especially difficult, destructive, abusive marriages? Or where did this all come from? No, it's totally God's design, actually. I laugh think, looking back at it. And really, I was a very young counselor. I was counseling mostly women coming in um, with anxiety, depression, um, and one by one, the Lord just kept revealing to me, these women were in oppressive marriages. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wanted to help advocate for them with their churches. And I just was convinced at the time, if their leadership knew the horrors that they were living under, they would really understand and seek to come to their rescue and quickly learned it's really hard to communicate to churches, um, concisely and accurately what it's like to live in an abusive marriage. And so, Again, the Lord just put it on my heart to want to speak well to churches and develop a way of talking about abuse that maps onto scripture for them. But yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you came to that to that conclusion that way too, because when I was writing my third book on depression, um, I felt the same thing as I was working with all these w- women who were depressed and I was speaking on depression and I was interviewing women who were depressed just to kind of get more data for my book. I'm thinking the common denominator. <laughs> is they are all in horrible, horrible, abusive, oppressive marriages and their spirits are being squashed. And the only way they can live like this is to completely shut down. And I'm thinking, is the best advice we have as Christians is the best biblical thing to just suck it up, to keep married and then lose your body, soul, mind, and spirit, or is there a better answer? And so it's interesting that we were on the same track with that because that was my wake up call. It's like, Oh my, something's wrong here. Yeah, yeah. And, and scripture says, right, to choose life. And the Lord wants us to flourish in our human relationships. And that's where we represent him well, right? By uncovering these sins. But it's a long road to do that. And you need strength to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, Darby, what's been the hardest thing to get people, both the woman and the perpetrator, the oppressive controller, as well as the Christian community, to understand this whole concept? of oppression in marriage? Yeah, I think one just easy reality is that oppressors don't look like oppressors to the outside world, right? Their public face is often much different. Um, And people, I think the problem of imagination, I would say, I would say people who live outside oppressive marriages lack the imagination 
to understand the horrors that are actually occurring in an abusive marriage. They think they relate it to their own marriage. Well, I have a marriage trouble too. They can't possibly imagine what someone is facing. And I think it's the same thing for a victim. They can't, they, they don't understand that they're, um, they're married to someone whose behaviors are purposeful. It doesn't mean they're actually plotting against them, but they come from such a deep-seated, wrong-seated worship problem in their heart um, that they're living out their values in such a way that torments and punishes and instills fear. And I think victims really struggle to think that their, their spouse's heart is that committed to itself versus living for the Lord. Yeah, I think we have somewhat of a ability or inability to see the wickedness in someone. We want to see the good, especially if we're married to them. And so we kind of rationalized ourselves. Well, he doesn't mean it that way, or he's not really trying to do that. He's just trying to be a good leader. And so how would you help a woman discern the warning signs between a husband who's trying to be a good leader and maybe sometimes going over the top a little bit or being a little bit domineering and truly an oppressor who is squashing and smashing her selfhood, her personhood. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really hard thing to tease out, right? Because when we're thinking about marriage and relationships and submission, scripture does talk about dying to ourselves and forsaking things that we want to serve another person, right? Mm-hmm. But I think we have to back off and think more broadly, um, even Jesus's submission was willful. Like he, there were moments that he, you know, said, Lord, if there's any other way, but he still willfully submitted out of love for us. And he woos us by gentleness. And oftentimes oppressive spouses, we, when you have to submit or serve someone and it's fear-based or you're afraid to disagree, um, or you can't bring out up an objection or an alternative thought without there being a debate. When you're so devalued, your input is devalued, then that, that's very different, right? When someone's a good leader listens um, to the helpers the Lord puts around them. And so if you're feeling like this person isn't listening to me, hearing me out, they're interrupting, being sarcastic, mocking me, um, or I'm afraid to approach them about something really simple, then something's probably very off. Yeah. And so we would call that a woman who complies. She's complying with her oppressor as you would a prisoner complying with your prison guard. This right. is yeah. biblical marriage. No, the subjugation, right? It's not submission when we're submitting to someone out of fear. Yeah. Exactly yeah. And right. so that fear factor. And so what would you say to the woman whose husband says, well, that's in your own head or that's you're too sensitive, or you're just overreacting, or you don't need to be afraid of me, I'm not going to hurt you. Um, And so she's sort of dismissed when she's trying to get help from her people helpers by her, you know, with her counselor, or even her girlfriends, you know, I'm not afraid of my husband, why are you afraid of your husband? And it's hard to put this into words, unless there's a physical episode. That's very true. And I think that's one thing that that I try to do in my book is it abuse, right? Coercive control goes across all elements of relationship. It's not just a physical dimension. And so I think the one thing I would urge victims to do if they're feeling that way, or if they're wondering is something off in my marriage, I really just encourage them to journal, journal and journal. It's probably gonna take you 10 or to 30 entries of your journal to say after this incident, this is what happened and I felt this way. And you really are gonna need a lot of different data, a lot of different stories to begin to see a pattern and then take that to someone who 
who is familiar with oppressive dynamics or your book or my book and see if some of those things start to match up and fill in some of those patterns. Um, and I really think it's so easy for somebody else to, your oppressor is already twisting your interpretation of reality. And when you're bringing it to somebody else, if they're not skilled, if they're not trained, and they're also saying that's not valid, that's gonna be really destabilizing. So you really wanna find someone or a book and a journal and sit with the Lord and really write out, these are the, I'm, 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 these are the things that are happening. And you'll find themes, you'll find, I'm perpetually dismissed or he's mocking me or he's treating me like a child. Over time, if you write a few things out, you'll see a theme that will really help you start to make sense of things. I love that. I think the pattern is so important for women to begin to see because, you know, we're to overlook an offense. You know, we all stumble in many ways. All of those verses are used to kind of excuse mm -hmm. behavior. And, and I'm grateful for them because my husband has given me a lot of grace over marriage and I've given him a lot of grace. But when you see patterns of the same thing happening over and over again that are harmful to the marriage, harmful to the soul or spirit or body of the other person. And you've already said, ouch, or stop, or don't, or this upsets me, or I don't like this, or what about my perspective? And you're completely invalidated or dismissed or made fun of, like you said, or mocked. Um, and you see that pattern, you're beginning to see there is no me allowed to be in this relationship. It's all about you. You call it we, but there is no we and there is no me. It is all about you. And journaling that, you can begin to see that overarching, self-centered, selfish dynamic of, I want my way. I want you to do what I want. And I don't want to hear any dissent. And if you dissent and upset me, you have a price to pay. Yeah. And I don't care that I hurt you, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even a good husband, like my husband, or like you said, I might hurt my husband, but when I'm approached, whether what my intentions were or not, it hurts me that I hurt them. If you're married to someone who is not affected by them harming you intentional or not, that's a, that's a big red flag. And so it's just even just realizing if I'm saying to my spouse, like you said, ouch, and they're indifferent to my ouch, that means I really need to pay attention to how can, how can someone supposed to be partnering with me, loving me and cherishing me, being different to my pain. Yeah. And even if they then, so this is what I tell women to say, even if they say, well, you're just being too sensitive. And I would say to them, say, yeah, I am sensitive. And this exactly. bothers me instead of feeling defensive, like, oh, I shouldn't be sensitive to say, right. yeah, it's sort of like if you had a really bad sunburn, you would be sensitive. Mm -hmm. And if your husband grabbed your arm and you said, don't, don't do that. I'm sensitive. I'm sunburned. You would hope that yeah. a person would care about that and say, oh, I'm yes. sorry. You forgot you, you know, have, you know, sunburned arms or I, I didn't mean to hurt you. And I'm so sorry that hurt you. Do you want me to rub cream on it or something like that? But yeah. when they're just mocking you for being sensitive and then you have to feel defensive about being sensitive. Um, and I think that's where a woman begins to have her eyes open. It's okay for you to be sensitive. God made you sensitive. And that's part of where a husband, even in, even in an intimate encounter, if something bothered you and you said, well, that, I'm sensitive there, that, that, I don't like that. Yep. They should care about that. And if they don't care about places where you're sensitive, um, yep. that's a red flag. Yes, hugely, hugely so, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So if someone is listening to us right now, talk about this and she's going, this is me. I think this is me. I feel so unheard, unloved, undevalued, squashed. I am a role. I am simply a role, an object to use. I 
make his dinner, I take care of his children, I clean his house, I service him sexually. But me as a person, what I want, my dreams, I want to go to college, I want to work part time, I love doing my crafts, and he says they're too messy, whatever it is, I love teaching Bible study, and he says that takes too much time away from my cooking and cleaning and others, but whatever it is that I'm not allowed to be me, I laugh too loud, I raise my hands in worship, these are all examples of women that I've taught. Yep. You know, yeah. they're trying to be expressive and stop that. You're embarrassing me. Um, what should she do next? Should she actually try to confront her husband on this? I'm sure she's already said some things about like, I don't like this. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think, I think if you would reflect in your own heart or just in your own history of marriage, you'd probably come up with dozens of dozens of times that you've already done that confronting. Sometimes, depending on the severity of, of the abuse or the oppression, it is worthwhile trying to have a short conversation and saying, I'm just noticing this pattern with you. And I'm noticing that, you know, the way you spend money really serves you um, and it feels imbalanced. Or when we're talking, I feel like you're really dismissive. Maybe it's helpful to have a really local conversation about any one thing. Um, but I would abort that conversation pretty quickly if then you know, you're getting that resistance. Um, and, and sometimes I'll have women just be able to carve away, like you're saying, you don't want me visiting my family. And sometimes it's saying, you know, I've decided my family's a priority. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start making changes and seeing them more regularly. Sometimes it is worth having those micro conversations if it's safe, right? It's not always safe. And that's the hard thing. Um, so by and large, I think probably the bigger step back would be um, to really start to talk to somebody else, to help them sort through your story and organize your story and be able to crystallize a complaint that someone outside of yourself can really hear and validate. Yeah, I love that. I think that when a woman starts to get strong enough, and she might just need to work on herself to begin to mm -hmm. say, maybe he doesn't validate me, but I need to validate mm -hmm. me. Yes, visiting my family is important to me and that's important for me to stick up for um, mm -hmm. because sometimes we allow someone else to invalidate us and then we invalidate our own goals or our own values or oh, those aren't important or God must not want me to do that. Or, you know, my family, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm not leaving and cleaving if I want to see my mother, you know, twice a year, <laughs> those kind right. of things. Yeah. So I think to begin to get healthy enough and to work on, her own mindset to say, wait a minute, being married doesn't mean I am now reduced to the status of a child, a slave, or a robot. I yep. am a person created in God's image with right. dignity and value and worth. I have ideas. I have creativity. I have desires. And if I'm not allowed to express those in this marriage, there's something really wrong. And so I'm going to start micro talking about this and you're not the overall, you're an abusive man, but just, right. Hey, this is important to me to work part-time, or this is important to me to visit my family. If you don't want to go at Christmas time, I understand that I'm going the day before Christmas or I'll go the day after Christmas, but I'm not, not going anymore. And as she begins to stand up for herself, or this is important to me that we have a savings account, whatever it is, yep. she will begin to see something happening. And it will shift the dynamics of the relationship a little bit. He will get either a little bit more respectful or he will get a little bit more abusive um, mm -hmm. to see if he can push you back into your old place. And if he gets a little bit more abusive or a little bit more authoritative, controlling, domineering, restrictive, all those kind of things, that's a really good sign for you that you're right, abort the conversation. This isn't going anywhere and you need to get extra help 
for your safety yep. as well as whether or not the marriage can be restored. Yeah. And yeah. And navigating day-to-day life. Yeah. It gets really excruciatingly difficult when you can't have a preference. I mean, you're, I think the way you're talking about it, when I talk about it with my, the women I counsel, I talk about you're really enslaved to someone else's desires and the way they want to run their life. And the Lord did not create it did not create us to be enslaved. He even gave to women dominion, right? And gifts to be used. And these are good things that we want to pursue, but we have to do it safely. And I think it's, it's hard to then start thinking, I'm not going to change him. So the next step is a big, what do I do now? It's, it's hard to think that through by yourself. Yeah. All right. And I think Darby, talk with me a bit about this whole, but I was made to be his helpmate. I remember listening to an interview with a very prominent Christian author and his wife. And that interview said to her, what do you think your most important role is mm-hmm. in, 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 you know, what does God have you do in your life? And she looked at him and he said, serving me. Wow. That is the mindset. Yes. Of these kind of people is that your, your life as my wife should revolve around serving me. If you want your own life, then you're not being a good wife. If you have things outside of serving me and what I need and my desires and my ministry goals and my, you know, purposes, then there's something wrong with you. You're a selfish, ungodly, unsubmissive woman. And I think that's been the lingo for most conservative Christian teaching on all of this. And so it becomes very confusing for a woman as she starts to stick up for herself and say, wait a minute, I mean, I can be me too and have my own desires. And it's not just about my marriage. It's also about what God's called me to do or things that I would like to do to develop myself. And I think what's really interesting in that, if you just hear that your, your design is to serve me, that man has usurped God's position and Christ's position, right? And no scripture is really clear. You know, he's created us to serve the Lord and love the Lord God, right? And then our neighbor as ourself, not just our spouse, right? So our primary focus is to love and serve the Lord. And that means loving our husbands by confronting them in sin. That means reading scripture. That means loving our children and our neighbors and our extended family. And there's so much involved in what we were created to do. When someone wants to put themselves as a center of what your purpose is, they really don't understand God's design for his people. Yeah. And I think of the Proverbs 31 marriage where, you know, she was very independent of him. She mm-hmm. had her own money. She had her own life. She did her own ministry and he was in the gates doing his own thing too. And they had this amazing marriage where it said he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. I don't have to control her. I don't have to micromanage her. She's flourishing. I'm flourishing. We have a great marriage. And that to me is, is the picture of what a great marriage looks like. Not that she just revolves herself around making him happy and if she doesn't there's a problem right yeah yeah and then i think that's just us believing that the lord's given her dominion in the garden he gave them dominion right Mm -hmm. and giftedness and a mind to worship yeah and to love others let's shift gears for just a minute darby and talk to the pastor or the counselor who's doing premarital counseling i know i've done premarital counseling Mm -hmm. and you have to probably if you know people who are remarrying or people who are marrying for the first time and what might be some of the questions they could ask or some of the warning signs that a marriage is destructive. So premarital counseling is just really tricky in that people are just excited and oftentimes in the relationship abuse early on doesn't look like abuse. It really looks like passion, right? 
the, uh, the oppressive or the potentially oppressive person is saying, I wanna spend all my time with you. They're not really saying, I'm seeking to isolate you from all your friends. They're saying, I'm just so jealous for you. I have to be checking your phone. I just wanna make sure you know, you're not really talking to anyone else. You're not picking up on the fact that that's like stalking light. They're usually trying to push physical boundaries, but again, it feels good. I just can't help myself. You're not picking I up love you so that. much, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like I just can't, yeah. Um, they tend to do grand gestures. You know, they might show up with, at your work with balloons or flowers. And really it's a sophisticated way I say of a man being territorial. But again, it feels good to have that intensity. And so when we're doing premarital counseling, what we really wanna find out um, what happens in, in the other moments of the relationship. You know, is, are you guys doing any of her preferred activities? And if you are, what's that like? Is she allowed to complain in the relationship? If she's, if, has there been a time that you've been sick? You know, has he, has he moped? Has he complained? Well, you need to be here for me anyway. There's only going to be these little tiny moments that you have to catch the entitlement um, in, a, in a relationship before it's married. I probably is the same with you, but most of the women that I counsel, they tell me once they get married, a switch was flipped and everything became really different. But if they look back, there's these little tiny things they can look at. I was in a restaurant one time and he berated the waitress. I should have picked up on what he thought about women. You know, he talked about his mother in such disparaging ways or his ex in such disparaging ways. I should have paused on that moment. And so I think that's so hard to women who are already in these situations. God doesn't want us looking backwards necessarily, but I think it's helpful for us looking at trying to prevent abuse. So I often say if the relationship's progressing too fast, right? If it's like, if he's just pushing, I wanna engage, I wanna marry you, I love you, all that's coming in too fast, too intense. Um, and there's just too much push for physicality. Those are some really red flags. Yeah, I think those are all so good. And I think perhaps some of the biggest ones for, for what I've noticed is the intensity. I love that word. So when the relationship feels too good to be true, it's exactly right. It's too good to be true. Um, I think it'd be helpful if a premarital counselor separated them and asked a few questions by themselves. Like, you know, what's it like for you when you say no to him? Yep. Because I think that what happens in a relationship of intensity and romance you rarely do say no to him because a woman wants to please. She wants to please her man. And so she's kind of usually the one who accommodates and defers more. So you don't get to pick up on, oh my gosh, I'm not allowed to say no. I never have said no. So right. to really, so the counselor could begin to say, you know, it's really important that you test that, that how does he handle your no? Like if you don't want to go out with him that night, or you want to go to bed because you have an important business meeting tomorrow, or you have a test to study for, and you can't get together, how does he handle your needs and your no? And I think that could be a huge red flag if she ever said it. And that's why right. it's important that we coach or counsel her to, to say no sometimes to see how he handles those or asking him to serve her in some way. What does that look like? Not just on his terms. Oh, I'm going to bring her flowers. I'm taking her to a beautiful dinner. Right. Hey, I need you to not call me this weekend because I'm having a silent retreat with the Lord. And how does he meet those needs for her? Is he respectful and willing to do that? Or is he, you know, I, I don't right. know why you would do such a crazy thing and, and putting right. that down and invalidating her need is less important than his need to be with her. Yeah. And I know like, even when I was dating, I, I went mountain biking. I would never do that married. <laughs> I was too scared, right? but I wasn't necessarily saying I'm not really enjoying this, right? But it's so important 
as you're dating someone to be saying, well, no, I don't want to see another superhero movie. Can we watch a Jane Austen movie? Mm-hmm. It's really letting your personhood emerge in the relationship and seeing whether it's cherished. In the back of my book, I actually made an inventory for premarital counseling because I think it's so hard to pick up on mm-hmm. that I really, that, but there are key warning signs. And that's just one thing I really am passionate about is, is people using that kind of survey as they're dating seriously. Yeah, or even trying to give up your dreams or, or yourself. I remember I was speaking once, Darby, and a woman came up to me in the audience. She was engaged to someone in the church and she said, let me ask you a question. He wants me to change the way I dress. I think I actually put this in my book. You know, he doesn't, he thinks I dress too attractive. He wants me to dull it down some. And I'm like, well, how do you feel about the way you dress? And she says, I like the way I dress. And she wasn't dressing provocatively or seductively. It was just a cute girl dressed as a cute way. That made him feel insecure. And I want to control how you look to other men. Um, And that was a huge red flag for me. It wasn't for her. It was interesting that she asked. And when she did try to push back a bit on it, then he used the Bible as if we're going to get married, you have to learn to submit. And aren't you supposed to please me and not yourself? And aren't you supposed to please your husband, not yourself? All those verses then make you feel like, oh yeah, he's right. I'm wrong. I better do this. And so I think it's so important for us to kind of ferret through some of those things with a couple to see how they handle disagreements, how they handle conflict, how they handle their, her no, or her desire to do something. Maybe he's not crazy about her. Does she even have the freedom to say that both internally as well as externally? Yeah. I think what you're bringing up is a good point. You think about how a man in Ephesians is told to use scripture with a woman, like what you're saying is it's punitive, it's disciplinary, it's teaching and, and almost like shaming right? When we look at what scripture says is a husband's supposed to wash his wife with the water of the word and make her feel pure and bring her closer to Christ. Anytime someone's using scripture to not convict you, but condemn you, that's a huge red flag right there. Yeah. 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 I don't know about you, but I've gotten lots of calls from small group leaders and Mm -hmm. they're observing a couple in their small group or maybe a small church where you have more personal relationship with people and you start to observe certain things. What would a small group leader, I mean, they might, for example, in my example, they observed a wife, like always looking to like, can I, can I answer this question? Kind of. Yes. Um, and that concerned them like over time, it wasn't just a one time, it was often, or he'd interrupt her. And so it sounded like she wasn't allowed to speak even in the group. What would be some of the other signs that a small group could lead or could do? And if we're going to get the church involved and we want them to care and notice these things, what would they do? Yeah, I think in that situation, if a small group leader is noticing something, I really just say, pursue a friendship with that woman. At first, it's not going to be easier for her to tell you all the hard parts about her marriage. Um, She might not even be able to identify herself that it's abuse. You're identifying something maybe she just thinks is normal. Um, And so... I think befriending her, finding another woman in the church that just pursuing her for coffee, drawing her out, creating a friendship, and then beginning to speak in to say, you know, I, when we talk, you have a lot of valuable things to say in small group. I notice a different dimension. I think that's just a really loving way to pursue someone versus just that confrontation. I'm worried about your marriage. I don't like the way your husband's treating you. That just comes out of nowhere. It puts people on their heels. They often will defend their husband and they can't, it doesn't help them gain insight into that the dynamic is wrong. But if, if they feel like they have a relationship with you, that you value them, then you can speak some of those other, make some of those other assessments. Over time, these are things I'm noticing about you. It concerns me because again, this just isn't God's design for marriage. You know, can we talk more about your marriage? 
right? So asking those curious questions versus condemning or confronting questions, which make people feel more suspicious or on guard or defensive. Yeah, I think the way I would put it is when you see things like that, it makes you curious. So you don't want to confront as much as you want to stay in a curious mode and just mm -hmm. to continue to investigate, ask wonderful questions and just pursue interest, stay curious. Yeah. yeah, and I often tell my, even women, when they ask their husbands, instead of confronting them about something, be curious. Like, why isn't it okay for me to have my opinion? What bothers you about that? Versus confronting them. You're controlling and abusive. I read this book and she says you're controlling and abusive. If she can come at it with some curious questions, <clears throat> it might give him the opportunity to take a pause and self-reflect. Hmm. Well, my dad was that way. That was normal in our household. What are you talking about? Or right. I'm the head of the home and God gives me the right to control you. You know, not yeah. quite that blatant, but she'll get a kind of a clarity there about where yeah. he's at. Yes. Yeah. Is it learned behavior or is it entrenched behavior? Right. That's a big difference. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for sure. So when you were writing this book, you were sort of having two audiences. I think you were trying to have an audience for the woman who's been in this situation and your other audience, I think, was church leadership and saying, hey, I know you guys are in a hotspot. Is it abuse? Isn't it abuse? Is it a difficult marriage? Is it a destructive? What is it? And how do we tell? So what's been your response from the church? I'm curious. Yeah, I think when I go places, actually, pastors really thank me for the book. They'll say, we, we are so thankful that you came up with so many questions. Mm -hmm. You have so many case stories. And we understand something that we didn't. And yet it was really hard to read. It was horrible. I really didn't understand the depth of um, what was happening. But most of the time it's like, they'll be telling me I used it in this way, or I had this woman and I pulled it off the shelf and I was able to discover this because of all your questions. And so I think when I hear people using it well is that they are trying to use it as a tool to make a wise discerning assessment by spending the time and really getting to know someone on their story. Um, and then they acknowledge it takes a lot of time to really understand. And so mm -hmm. I've been encouraged by the pastors that I've spoken with that A, taken the time to read it, but then take the time to sit with the victim and, and listen to hours and hours and hours of the data that they need. Now, there seems to be two camps that I've encountered. One is a pastor like that and amazing, amazing uh, ministry to his sheep who are wounded. Mm -hmm. I had one pastor who was so advocating for this wife that actually the elders fired him because mm -hmm. he was saying you can get a divorce. And that was like, oh my gosh, we can't allow that. Our pastor yeah, said yeah. divorce. So, so, so that's one side. And then the other side is, well, I don't know. It's so nuanced. And it's so, you know, how do we know who's telling the truth here? And the sanctity of marriage becomes the sacred cow of the whole conversation and not the welfare and the well-being and the spiritual growth and maturity or not of the individuals in that relationship. Yeah. And that's really tragic. Right. And I think what's sad to me is when you ever, when someone wants to reduce it down to a, he said, she said, they're not really looking at the problem as two different people that they're supposed to shepherd. They're afraid, or maybe I, I always say there's most pastors I work with are learners. And when you have a pastor who's in front of you and is a learner, it might take 10 conversations for them to understand it, but they're a learner. There are people we encounter all the time, right? That I say are willfully ignorant, <laughs> that yeah. they just don't want to understand. Um, and, and I think when we encounter those people, we just have to, the people that we're caring for, we just have to say, we've had these conversations. They really have this bias towards us. And it's usually it's fear-based or maybe something in their own personal life it's touching up against. 
And they're just not going to be helpful to you because they're not really willing to learn about you and your story. They're more worried about an institution or yeah, keep not getting things messy or about getting something wrong. When we, when we minister to people in oppressive marriages, we create messes and the Lord's messes. We don't want to be afraid of messes. And some people are, and I think, I think that's a disservice. Yeah. So if a woman was going to her pastor, cause you said earlier that, you know, she might try to confront her husband, but then again, she might need to seek some outside help. And usually that outside help, the first responder is the pastor. The first person yes. she might go to if she's a woman of strong faith would be that because she wants to see, you know, get some help for her husband. Usually like, can you talk to him? Can we institute church discipline or can we do something, an intervention or some sort? What can we do? What if her pastor is uninterested or can't absorb that or kind of defers to, well, don't make him mad or, you know, dance around him so he doesn't do those things to you kind of thing. What would her next step be? I would probably go in several different directions, right? I would just have her be praying because we don't know who the Lord's going to put around Mm her. Mm -hmm. I would have her look for a counselor that understands oppressive marriages. Um, Some women women really feel like they want um, elders or somebody in leadership to help see them. And so Sometimes there's somebody else in the church. Maybe you have a girlfriend whose husband also would understand the dynamics. And that's more comforting to a victim to see, to have somebody in their body understanding, even if it isn't leadership, or maybe it's a different person in leadership. Or maybe you need to start going to a Bible study at a church where they understand these dynamics and building relationships with other Christians who do. And so I think it's, it's waiting and seeing who the Lord presents but really being discerning, if, if you're telling your story and you're being dismissed, if you're being shut down, if you're again saying to someone, I'm in pain, and they're using the Bible to staple you back together, instead of really comfort you and try to understand you, you're not going to, I would say, don't have a lot of conversations with that person. Um, they're not wise and discerning in this area, and you really need to find other counsel. And it can come from a variety of people. Sometimes it's first going to come through a friend you know, to say, help me piece together my, that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book in the way that I did. So another woman, an untrained woman could walk alongside a woman and really learn, help me piece together my story so that I can present it in a way that's coherent and overwhelming Mm -hmm. that I can get attached to help. Yeah, that's so good. A woman can't do this alone because Mm -hmm. she's so used to being oppressed and controlled oftentimes she's lost her compass, even though she loves the Lord, she thinks the Lord's on his side. So she's really lost her compass of, of direction. And so having a supportive person who can help her learn again, how to think for herself, how to discern, how to make decisions. I think so often some of the women we work with are looking for another rescuer, like, okay, my husband's controlling in a bad way, but I want someone to tell me what to do in a good way. And instead of taking responsibility for their own life and their own decisions before the Lord uh, with wise counsel, they're kind of looking for the hero to come in and, and scoop them up and take them to a safe place and buy their groceries and rescue them out of this mess they're in. And people have done that. And it usually doesn't really amount to a whole lot of permanent change. It might temporarily rescue somebody from a dangerous situation, which is important, but it doesn't lead to the kind of change a woman needs to make through this oppressive relationship. I mean, this oppressive relationship in some way is, is a teacher for her. I remember working, not working with a woman, but I remember at a business conference, a woman was asked me what I did. And this was not a Christian conference at all. And I told her and she said, Oh my gosh, she goes, I married one of those. I married a narcissist. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I said, 
what do you mean? Tell me more. And she said, oh, I was such a people pleaser. I was such a baby when I got married. I was so naive and I had to grow up fast. I had to learn how to set boundaries. I had to learn how to speak up for myself. I had to learn how to take care of myself because otherwise I was going to be flat ironed. And I thought, what an amazing perspective that even though this was hard, this was a teacher for her in some ways to learn to be a stronger, more mature person. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. We think about a good friend is a friend who actually helps restore your agency, right? If you, if you come to a friend and the friend actually say advice with something and they actually say, I trust that God's going to give you the right answer that not only restores confidence in yourself, but it works to restore your relationship with the Lord versus just someone dispensing advice. Well, this is what you should do. Right. And so good friends restore your agency. Yeah. They believe in you. They believe the Lord's going to help shape you. The Lord's going to save you. The Lord's going to give you wisdom versus them also stepping into that role of trying to, and who doesn't want to try to control or rescue when we see abuse, right? We all have that impulse because it's so horrible, but recognizing loving someone well actually means to them saying to them, I see your capacity and I see how the Lord can lead you. And we're going to, I'm going to walk this, I'm going to guide you and I'm going to cheer you on. And I'm going to pray for you that the Lord leads you in this. And that just creates such a stronger person at the end of the story. Yeah. And it's, it's somewhat, if your people helper says to you, Hey, I know what's best for you. I'm the expert in your life. That's sort of the same thing as the oppressor, isn't it? And so even though it might sound nicer, it's still the same kind of dynamic. And so it's really important that as a woman in that situation, that you begin to learn to listen for that. And the woman or the man who says, hey, God's the expert and we're going to go to him and he's going to show you. I have some ideas here, take them or leave them, but God's going to show you the right path. You know, and I think those are amazing words of wisdom. How could a woman get in touch with you or a leader get in touch with you if they wanted to hear more? Sure. I work for the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, and they have a website, ccef.org. And there's different avenues to reach me through that website, depending on your request. And Darby has provided a wonderful article for you. It's called How to Discern True Repentance When Serious Sin Has Occurred. This article could be amazing for a pastor who's Got two people and he's going, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I won't do this again. We've all heard that. And he does it again and he does it again and he does it again. And he's still sorry. I was teaching um, my pastors about this. And I said, imagine if we were in the parking lot in the church, we go to a very big church and mega church. And I said, and someone was texting and they smashed into your car and you, you know, you got out of the car and you had a cut on your head and your front end was smashed. And they said, oh my gosh, pastor, I'm so glad it's you because love covers a multitude of sins. And I'm so sorry. Thank you. And he gets in his car and drives away Mm -hmm. and you're left bleeding with a broken car. Mm -hmm. Is that repentance? No, no. And that's where we make such mistakes in counseling is we see this guy kind of pulling out scripture or saying these things, the right things. And yet there's no care for the pain he's caused someone. There's no restitution. There's no repairs. There's no willingness to say, oh my gosh, I better never text again when I drive. That was stupid. All those kind of things are part of the repentant heart. And when you don't see evidence of repentance mm-hmm. or care for the pain they've caused, they may have a lot of pain that they're in, but That's right. not <laughs> the pain they've caused. That's right, for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Themselves, so it's a right. great article for both the victim as well as the perpetrator. And so if you'd like a copy of Darby's article, you can go to our website at lesliebernick.com forward slash repentance, and we will provide that for you as well. Darby, I just want to thank you so much for 
giving us your time on your vacation. After all, oh. vacation is vacation. So I'm honored that you are part of our uh, podcast and part of the group of people that I know that are really helping women who are in terrible, terrible relationships get clear headed about God loves you and values you and doesn't call this good. And I think once we can help them understand that, they can get some fresh air in that isolated heart and head of theirs and begin to make some real changes. Anything no. you want to share before we go? No, just my appreciation to you for really pioneering this and spearheading this out of your love for women and desire to see right be made right and the wrong be called out. So I, I've just appreciated your ministry for years. And so thank you for all that you have done. And I'm always hearing stories of women who felt rescued by your words. So thank mm. you. Well, thanks so much. God bless. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go to leslievernick.com for more resources. If this show was helpful to you, please subscribe and share. And we'd love your honest rating and review. Until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.